Good morning. My name is Josh Miller, and I'm the lead pastor here at Central Church. If you're a guest with us here this morning, I want to give you a special shout-out. I'm really glad that you're here, and I would love to meet you after the service. We have a tent set up outside, actually, just for you, where we'd love to get to know you a little bit and even give you a small gift to say thank you for being here this morning. We are in the middle of a sermon series called In the Beginning, where we are looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. So this morning, we're going to be in Genesis 6 through 9. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 through 9 is the story of Noah and the ark. And if you made a list of the three most famous Bible stories in America, Noah and the ark would definitely make the list. It was even made into a terrible movie a few years ago. Um, what's interesting is that most people misunderstand the story of Noah and the ark. Most people misunderstand the point of the story. If when you think of Noah, you think of a cuddly story for kids that you might plaster on your son or daughter's bedroom wall, then you are seriously misunderstanding what the story of Noah is about. You see, the story of Noah is about three big things. It's about the seriousness of sin, it's about the reality of judgment, and it's about the hope that only God can provide. The story of Noah is incredible, it is rich, but it is often misunderstood, which is why I'm so excited to walk through it today with you. Noah's story is the longest story that we've encountered so far in the book of Genesis. It's twice as long as the story of Adam and Eve, and it's four times as long as the story of Cain and Abel. And what that tells you is that there's something important for us to learn in Noah's story. You don't take up that much of your narrative if there isn't something important going on. And in particular, it's important because it's going to teach us four fundamental truths about how God sees the world. Four fundamental truths about how God sees the world, what you might also call a biblical world view. So let's get right into it. Here's the first thing that we learn from Noah's story in verse 5 through 7. Number one, sin is serious. Sin is serious. Verse 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the disease of sin that entered the world in Genesis chapter 3 then expanded in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain killing his brother Abel. And by Genesis chapter 5, it has become a full-on epidemic and has spread to every single person across the face of the planet. The verse says that the intention of man's heart was only evil continually, only evil all the time. People were violent, people were dishonest, people were selfish, the strong exploited the weak, and sexual perversion spread rapidly. Verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Sin was so dark and so widespread that God regretted making human beings. Sin grieved him to his heart. Think about what a massive statement that is. Sin grieved God so much, it was so bad, that he regretted making human beings. That's a big statement. Why, why does God care so much about sin? Why is sin so serious? Well, first of all, it's serious because it's cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason. That's the first reason. People, you and I, were created by God to be his representatives on earth. 
ruling over his creation under the rule of his good word. But when we sin, when Adam and Eve sinned, they rejected God's authority, and instead they acted like this world and their lives belonged to them. They said, I know me better than anyone else knows me, so I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't care, God, that you created this world, and you know how it runs best. I'm going to treat this world how I want to treat this world. And if that means I destroy this world, if that means I destroy other people, then I'm okay with that because I am the Lord of my life. It's cosmic treason. You see, traitors throughout the world can be useful in the time of war, but no culture in the history of mankind has loved traitors. There's no culture that has said, man, I just want to grow up to commit treason against my country. Right? Like, you might find a traitor from another country useful, but you're never really going to trust that person, are you? Because you know, like, man, you just violated, you violated the country that has protected you and sustained you and has given you life. We all know that treason is despicable, and the first reason that sin is serious is because it is cosmic treason. Every time you and I reject God's authority and instead choose to treat our lives and the people around us in this world how we want, we are committing cosmic treason. We are those traitors. Here's another reason. Sin is serious because it mars the image of God. It mars the image of God. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that Adam and Eve were created in God's image to be a reflection of his character to the world around them. They were supposed to reflect to one another and to creation what God is like. But when we sin, we distort God's character to the people around us. I'll give you a practical example. Someone who's grown up with a deadbeat dad, who wasn't around, who didn't follow through on his promises, or who just abandoned his family that person will often have a very hard time thinking of God as a loving father. Why? Because through sin, the image of God has been marred in their life. You see, when we sin, we tell a lie about our creator. Every time that I'm unfaithful to a promise I've made, I am saying that God is unfaithful. I am not reflecting his image accurately. That's the second reason sin is serious. Here's another one. Sin is serious because it devalues those whom God values. It devalues those whom God values. You see, when we, tr when we sin against others, we treat them as less than image bearers of the almighty creator. This sin was at the very core and continues to be at the very core of the Me Too movement. You see, when men objectify women and treat them like they're not human beings, but like they're objects to be used, horrible exploitation results. One of the reasons that sin is so serious is because when we sin against one another, we act like the other person is not human and is not worthy of the value that God says that they are worthy of. Finally, sin is serious because it leads to death and bondage every time. Sin always leads to death and bondage, and here's how it works. The first time that you sin, it feels like freedom, doesn't it? The first time you throw off restraint and you do what you want to do, it feels thrilling and it feels like freedom but it always leads down a path to greater and greater bondage to sin and eventually to death. One sin is never enough, right? Ask any addict how this works. The first time that you, you got that high, the first time that you took that drink, it felt good. It felt like freedom. But then one drink and one hit wasn't enough, and it goes down and down and down and down until that person's entire life is destroyed. This is why almost every sexual predator started off as a pornography user. Sin is a disease that if it gains a foothold in your life, will lead to greater bondage and will lead to death. You see, sin is serious. 
which is why in verse 7, God says this. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God decided to send a flood on the earth to cleanse the earth from wickedness. He decided to wipe the earth clean and start over. Reminds me a little bit of the process of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is a violent process through which you seek to destroy a cancer in one of your loved ones so that they can recover. That is basically what God is doing here. He is destroying the cancer of sin. And in the flood, God destroyed almost all human life on earth. And when I wrote that, and when I just said that, I felt how you probably feel right now, which is a little bit uncomfortable. Because as Americans, we're very, very uncomfortable with the idea of a God who judges sin. And the reason for that is that as Americans, we don't take sin seriously. We don't even like to call it sin. I mean, very few people, I'm probably like offensive to you right now just using that word. Very few people use that word. We don't make, we don't sin, we make mistakes, right? We don't sin, we make poor choices, right? We aren't sinners, we just had a bad upbringing or a negative environment. And so the idea that, that God takes sin so seriously that he would wipe it off the face of the planet in this incredibly violent way is, is just, it's, it's beyond us. It's very hard for us to palate. But do you know who it's not hard? Do you know who doesn't have a hard time palating this? People who have experienced serious injustice. You know who doesn't have a problem with the idea of a God who judges sin? It's the rape victim. She has no issue with the idea that the man who violated, exploited, and scarred her will one day stand before a God of judgment and answer for his crimes. You know who else doesn't have an issue with that? The immigrant who has been exploited and oppressed because he lacks legal resources and other people are profiting and other people are becoming rich off of his poverty. He doesn't have an issue. In fact, he's looking forward to the day that one day someone will come, maybe it's the government, maybe it's someone else, but certainly God, and will make all things right and will condemn the wicked and will judge them. Can I be really honest? Usually the people who have a problem with God being a God of justice are people like me who have grown up in the safety and security of the suburb and have never really tasted real injustice. And in fact, if we're honest, in American society, have benefited from it. If you've never really tasted real injustice and you benefit from it, you don't think it's that big of a deal. But if you're on the other side of that equation, right, if you're in the third world and you are oppressed politically and your hours and hours and hours in the factory produces a Nike shoe that I can buy for $45 and people are getting rich in between, you have no issue with God judging sin. Miroslav Volf is a theologian and professor at Yale University. And he lived through one of the worst genocides of our era, the Croatian genocide. And he summarized this pretty pointedly. He said, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Sin is serious. It's so serious that God destroyed almost all of life on earth 
to wipe it out. So here's my question. Is sin serious to you? Is sin serious to you? Do you fight sin and flee from sin? Or do you flirt with it? Do you try to get as close to the line without going over? I know that the Bible says that drunkenness is a sin, but it's spring break, right? It's my best friend's wedding. I'm pledging a fraternity. I'm sure God understands, right? I'm, I'm going to see my boyfriend this weekend, and I've really, really missed him, and we care really deeply about one another. I'm sure it's okay for us to sleep together. I mean, where else would I sleep? Sure, this Netflix original series is rated mature, but everybody is talking about it. And what else am I going to watch tonight? I'm in a show hole. Right? Do you fight sin? Do you flee sin? Or do you flirt with sin? If you are consistently putting yourself in circumstances where you are going to be tempted, if you have no issue with ongoing progressive sin in your life, you are far more American than you are biblical. And the truth is we all have areas like that. I was deeply convicted this week thinking about this for myself. Whole areas of my life that I am much more like a 21st century American than I am like a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ. Do you take sin seriously? If not, man, this text calls you to repent. It calls you to repent. Here's the second thing that we learned from Noah's story. Obedience is the mark of living faith. Obedience is the mark of living faith. After describing how wicked men and women had become on the earth, verse 8 says something surprising and really pretty hopeful. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is where, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably were taught this story incorrectly, okay? This is how most, it usually went down in Sunday school. The world was really bad. There was Noah, and he was really good, so God chose to start over with Noah. But that's not what the text says. The text says that Noah found favor with God. It does not say that Noah earned favor with God. You see the difference? The difference between when you find something, when I find $20 on the sidewalk, I haven't earned that $20. It's just, it's some, in fact, somebody else did. And I'm just, okay, I received the $20. But if I go to work, and if, if I make $10 an hour, and I've worked two hours, I've now earned $20. Do you see the difference? It's very important. If you fast forward to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, the author picks up on this story and he tells us why Noah found favor with God. Do you know why it was? Because when God initiated to Noah with a promise of salvation, Noah believed him. Noah believed him, which is why Hebrews 11:7 says this, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. An heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Translated, that means that Noah was saved from the flood in the same way that people can be saved today. Not by working really hard and being really good so that God picks us out of all the wicked people on earth, but by simply believing God's incredible promise of salvation and responding. That's all Noah did. And because Noah had faith in God's promise, hear me, Noah responded in obedience. Listen to verse 9. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. I love that phrase, walked with God. It is a phrase the Bible uses all throughout to describe what a life of faith looks like. 
And here's why it's important. In 21st century America, many of us think that to be a Christian means to assent to some intellectual beliefs. Like, yes, I believe there's a God. Yes, I believe the Bible is God's word. Ergo, I must be a Christian. But throughout the Bible, what it meant to, walk, to, to be a believer, to be a, ma- a man or woman of God, was to believe God's word and then act upon it. That's why it doesn't say, oh, Noah, Noah believed God's word and then contemplated it. Hmm. Gosh, this idea of an, of an ark, God, that's very intriguing. I wonder what kind of ark you'd like it to be. I need to go talk to my friends about the kind of arcs that they're building. I wonder if there are other, other denominations that build their arcs differently than ours. So he said, build an ark, and Noah built an ark. He walked the walk, so to speak. Verses 11 through 21 of chapter 6 describe the corruption of the earth, kind of a restatement of the corruption of the earth, the coming flood, and then God's instructions to Noah to build an ark. And verse 22, I love this, summarizes the chapter when it says this, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God, may, may that be said of many of us. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You see, some people miss the point of this entire section of Noah's story because they focus in and they obsess on like the dimensions of the ark. You know, like how much gopher wood would it have taken to build this thing? And like how many square feet would it have been? And how many animals could have fit? And where did all the hay come from? You know, like all this stuff. I don't know, okay? Like I don't have answers for you. And I'm confident that this was not written so that we could figure out like the dimensions of each animal's stall, okay? So if, if that's what you're really into, you're going to be very disappointed with the rest of this sermon, okay? Because I'm not going to talk about it again. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. God told him he did it, okay? Here's the big point. Noah had faith in God's promises, so he obeyed God's word. Noah had faith in God's promises, so he obeyed God's word. Noah finished the ark, and then God said this in chapter 7, verse 1. Noah, go into the ark. You and all your household, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals and a pair of the animals that are not clean. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. That phrase that was used in chapter 6, verse 22 is repeated here in chapter 7, verse 5. And just kind of a tip for when you're reading the Bible, when God repeats something verbatim, it means it's really important. The, the theme that we're supposed to see of Noah's life is that he was a man who believed God's promise and acted on God's word. It shows us that obedience is the mark of a living faith. Or, to put that negatively, faith without works is dead. As James would tell us in the New Testament. Noah wasn't saved because of his good works, but Noah's saving faith was manifest through his works. Noah wasn't saved because he was the most righteous man in all the earth, but Noah believed God's promise. He believed what God said, that this flood was coming and that he needed to build an ark, and so he did it. You can tell Noah believed God because he obeyed God's word. Even, hear me, even when it didn't make sense. Even when it didn't make sense. Just think about this. God commanded Noah to build a gigantic boat. Like, we're not talking like a little boat for a lake. We're talking a gigantic boat. Do you know where Noah lived? In the mountains, right? He like lived in Charlottesville. And it's like, hey man, I need you to build a giant boat. He's like, 
Okay. You know, Je- Noah had probably never even seen a boat before. Like, he had never built a boat. He was not a boat maker by trade. And yet, God called him to do something that required an enormous amount of time, energy, and resources. I mean, Noah lived in a time when you were supported by the animals you raised and the food that you harvested. So every second that Noah was not harvesting food, but he was working on this giant boat, like, was economic just suicide. It was ridiculous. It took an enormous amount of investment. And conservatively, I mean conservatively, it took Noah 50 to 60 years to build this thing. 50 to 60 years. You have to imagine that Noah's peers, like, ridiculed him, right? Here's crazy old Noah building his boat in the middle of the mountains, right? You going to build an F-350, Noah, in a trailer so you can tow it down to the beach? How are you going to get it to the water? Like, it, like, never flooded and yet here's Noah, Bill, you have to imagine that after 10 years, one of his like friends is like, all right, man, I mean, maybe you've had, somebody's had this conversation with you. That, I think it's great. I think it's great, Noah, that you, man, that you have this relationship with God. That seems really helpful for you. Like, I'm so happy for you. But, I mean, you're taking this thing too seriously. You're taking this thing too seriously, right? I mean, it's been 10 years. No flood has come. Just, just take one weekend off and come hang out with us. We're having, you know, a spring fertility party or whatever. It's amazing how many things haven't changed in, you know, however many thousand years it's been. Right? I mean, you have to imagine that that's what Noah's, I mean, that's what Noah's peers, they're just like, they thought he was absolutely insane. And what we see from Noah's story is that, man, our obedience matters most when it doesn't make sense. And can I be honest with you? You haven't really started trusting God until that's the case. Right? I mean, let's say that Noah lived on a floodplain. Right? He lived near the beach. He, it flooded, you know, periodically, like once or twice a year. If he built an ark then, it's not really a lot of faith. It's just sort of makes sense. It made sense to Noah. God told him to do it, so he did it. Too often, our obedience stops at what makes sense to us. God, if what you, if what you say in your word seems to make sense to me, then I'm going to do it. But if it doesn't make sense to me, I'm not going to do it. Let's talk about our sexuality. God, what your word says about sexuality doesn't seem to make sense to me and my 21st century American worldview and what I've learned from Disney movies my whole life. What makes sense to me is that I should follow my heart. And so if my heart longs after this or after that, I should do it because the worst thing I could ever do in the world is not follow my heart. So God, I I like some of the things you say, God, in your word. Some of the things seem to make sense, but this doesn't. So I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do what I think makes sense. You're not really obeying at that point. Right? Anything that you do that already makes sense to you is just pragmatic. But Noah's obedience was demonstrated in that it did not make sense to him, and it was costly. And it was costly. You can be confident that you have living faith when you remain faithful to your spouse, even though you don't feel in love with her anymore. You can be confident that you have living faith when you give generously to support the work of God through the local church, even though you don't have buckets of money laying around. You can be confident that you have living faith when instead of taking shots with your coworkers, you enjoy one beer. You can be confident that you have living faith when instead of hooking up with guys, you treasure your sexuality as a gift for marriage. You can be confident that you have living faith when you obey what God's word says instead of following your heart in the moment. If that's not the case, then there's, there, there's not really a mark of living faith in your life. So here's the question. 
does your obedience demonstrate that you have living faith? Does your obedience demonstrate that your faith is alive and is vibrant and is strong? Or does it demonstrate that it's anemic? Or maybe even on life support? When God calls you to do something that's countercultural, that's uncomfortable, that doesn't make sense to you, how do you respond? Look, it's hard. It will make you look different than your classmates, than your coworkers, than your family members. I mean, it made Noah look really different. But here's the thing. You and I never know what hangs in the balance of our obedience. I mean, think about Noah. His 60 years of obedience saved the lives of his grandkids. I mean, very, not spiritually, not metaphorically, practically. Had Noah not obeyed, all of his family would have been wiped out. But because Noah did obey, his family was saved. You and I never know what hangs in the balance of our obedience. God calls us to obey in the moment on faith, and he doesn't always show us the difference that's going to make. William Wilberforce was an 18th century English politician. He experienced personal conversion in his 20s and became convinced that God was calling him to work against the slave trade. Now, when he started, that seemed like an utterly lost cause, and it was political suicide. He was called everything from a religious fanatic to a traitor to the crown. He worked for five decades against the slave trade. And three days before he died, he brought down slavery across the British Empire. Look, William Wilberforce had no idea what hung in the balance for millions of African people. He just knew that God was calling him to obey, and it was costly, and it would make him look weird, and it would lead to him being ostracized, and it hurt his career. But he knew that obedience to God matters most when you understand it least. And so he did. And thank God and praise God that he did. Obedience is the mark of living faith. What does your obedience say about your faith? And can I just be honest? Faith is not a one-time decision. Faith is not shown in the prayer that you prayed when you were nine or when you got baptized when you were 12. It doesn't, it's not a question of do you intellectually assent that God exists or that the Bible is helpful. The question is, are you personally surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ right now? And does your life demonstrate that? Does your life demonstrate that? Now, you might say, Josh, if God appeared to me and said, hey, I want you to do this like you did Noah, I would do that. It's a fair, it's a fair argument. But what I would say to you is God's done you one better. He's given you the Bible in case you forget what he says. Right? And the Bible is full of commands for God's people. Things like, Love your neighbor. Forgive your enemies. You husbands, serve your wives as Christ served the church and laid himself down for her. Be a witness in your community. Go and make disciples of all nations. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Join a local church. I mean, God's word is full of commands that are for our good. You see, the problem for most of us is not that we need to learn more knowledge. It's that we need to start obeying what we've already learned. Like when I get up here, I probably don't tell you a lot of things that are all that new. 
I'm just sort of looking at the Bible and being like, hey, this has been the case since Genesis 6. And I mean, you know, keep coming back for preaching, but it's going to be about the same no matter what we're preaching on. Like, it's kind of from Genesis 1 through 11, the rest of the Bible, just, you know, kind of more living color is all this. You see, for most of us, it's not that we need to learn more. For most of us, it's that we need to start applying the things that we have already learned. And the truth is, this is one of those areas that a biblical worldview and the American worldview actually agree. Because isn't the worst thing you can be called in our culture a hypocrite? Right? Isn't the thing that millennials value more than anything else authenticity? Right? That's good. That, I mean, that, that, that aspect of American culture is in line with what the Bible says. The Bible says, don't talk about it, be about it. Our culture says, be the change that you want to see in the world. So the question for us, the question for the church is, man, are we doing that? Is our faith being demonstrated by our lives? That's the second thing from Noah's story. Here's the third. When judgment comes, it's too late. When judgment comes, it's too, too late. I mean, this point is pretty intuitive. After working for 50-plus years on the ark, Noah finished the boat and brought his family and all, all the animals onto it. And look, I don't know how he got all the animals there. I don't know how he knew the difference between, like, a girl turtle and a guy turtle. I, I don't know, okay? With God's help, he managed it, all right? That's my answer. All right? Once he got all the animals on the boat, God said, Noah, get your family on the boat because the flood's about to start. And this is what verse 16 and 17 of chapter 7 say. Male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord, and the Lord shut him in. The rest of chapter 7 and most of chapter 8 describes a five-month-long flood that, as the text says, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. The waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Here's the point. Once the flood came, it was too late. It took Noah 50 plus years to build this boat. If you waited until the rain started, it, it, there's, no, there's no hope for you. The only people that escaped this judgment were Noah and those with Noah. Everything outside of the ark was wiped away. Everything perished. God delayed his judgment for years and years and years and years, but when it came, it was swift, holistic, and destructive. For Noah's peers, who jeered at the idea of a God of judgment, who looked around and said, no, it's pretty dry to me, who said, come on, Noah, you're being too serious about this thing. Certainly there's a lot of different ways. Certainly there's a lot of different perspectives on this. For Noah's friends who continue to live wicked lives, thinking that there would be no recompense, it was too late. The time for repentance and salvation had passed. They were doomed. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that the final judgment is going to come in the same way that the flood came in Noah's life. It happened in the blink of an eye. And Jesus says that's what the final judgment is going to be like. You see, the Bible teaches that one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And if you grew up in a church that said the Apostles' Creed, you repeated this every single week, right? Jesus will come again to judge the quick and the dead. And as a side note, I always wondered what Jesus had against fast people. But I'm serious. I was like, what is, but that word quick just means living, okay? Just means living. That means 
one of two things is going to happen in your life. One of two things. Number one, you're going to die, and you're going to stand before Jesus in judgment. Or number two, Jesus is going to return, and you're going to stand before Jesus in judgment. Either way, a moment is coming for every single one of us when we are going to blink our eyes, and when we open them again, Jesus is going to be standing in front of us, and he's going to say, we need to talk. He's going to say, we need to talk. And here's what's, here's what's frightening, and here's what the warning is. Jesus says, you're not going to see it coming. Just like, Noah's, just like Noah's friends didn't see it coming, you're not going to see it coming. Now, you might say, Josh, come on. It's 2019. You have a master's degree. You don't literally believe this. Or you don't literally believe that this judgment is going to occur. And I would say, yes, I do literally believe it because Jesus literally said it. And Jesus literally said a lot of things that challenged my 21st century American worldview. One in particular, hey, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. That also challenges my just sense of reality. Sure enough, he was crucified. Three days he was buried. He was very much dead. Three days later, he resurrected from the grave. Then for 40 days, he spent time with his disciples and appeared to over 500 people. He ate with them, he talked with them, he walked with them, he helped them explain what had just happened, and then he ascended again into heaven. See, I'm with the guy who can resurrect from the dead. Jesus literally said he would resurrect from the dead, and then he did it. So when he literally says he's going to come back one day, I'm with Jesus, okay? This is what he said in Matthew 24, 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. See, they're, they're very similar. For as in those days before the flood, Noah's buddies were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Listen, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, in 2004, there's a massive earthquake in the Indian Ocean. You guys might remember it. And it triggered a series of 100-foot tsunamis all across Southeast Asia, uh, that killed about 227,000 people. 227,000 people. Um, the, the earthquake was one of the deadliest natural disasters in recorded history. I mean, it was just, just awful. And before the tsunamis hit, a really strange phenomenon occurred. You see, the pressure of the earthquake, because it was so big, it caused the water to recede from the shoreline. In some places, the water receded more than a mile out to sea. Okay, so imagine that in your mind. You're at the beach, and here's the water usually, and it's just, I mean, a mile out. To, you can't even see it. Right? And this created two kinds of responses. Some people were very interested by this. So they started walking out to, you know, walking out on the, on the un, uncovered ocean bed, collecting shells and fish as they went. Other people perceived the danger and they ran the other way to higher ground. If you say to yourself, I want to have the full college experience, or I want to travel and experience life and have a good time, but then, you know, later when I get married and settle down, I'll get into church, or man, after my kids are a little older, I'll get into church, or once we have less activities or when I'm retired, I'll get into church. It is like you are walking out on the exposed ocean floor, collecting seashells, with no concept that a 100-foot death wave is coming towards you. If you interpret 
If you interpret the evidence correctly, you turn and you run and you find high ground and hope for salvation. That is the point of Matthew 24. And you might say, Josh, it's been 2,000 years. I don't think Jesus is coming back. You know, that was actually something people said in the first century when it had been like 12 years. That people said, this isn't going to happen. He hadn't come back in 12 years. This is literally, Peter is speaking to that exact objection in 2 Peter 3. He says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing, hear God's heart, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Guys, the Lord has withheld his judgment to this point so that more people could repent and be saved. That is why he has withheld his judgment, so that you and your coworker and your sorority sister and your family members and your neighbor would flee to the high ground that is Jesus Christ. You see, Noah's story shows us in a very stark way that once judgment comes, it is too late. The time for repentance and faith has passed. Right now, the door of salvation is open to any who would repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ, but one day that door is going to be closed. And if you are sitting here saying, in the future, one day, when I get married, when I retire, when I graduate, then I'll get serious about my faith, you are a fool. You are a fool. And you are standing on the uncovered sand, looking around at seashells. And I don't mean to be too harsh, but I, I'm on the high ground shouting at you. Come up here. Come be saved. God has made a way, but it won't always be available. You see, God provided an ark in Noah's day to all those who would believe his promise. Noah and his family were the only ones. And he has provided an ark in our day through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The question is, are you on the ark? Are you on the ark? Are you in the high ground? Look back at the first two questions. Does your attitude towards sin and does your life of obedience demonstrate that you're on the ark? Or do you have, you know, a Bible with an ark on it that you're carrying with you out into the ocean? Like, well, yeah, when I was nine, I heard about the ark and I assented to the reality of the ark, but I never got in it. That is going to do you no good when the tsunami comes. Which leads us to point number four. Even the best of us needs an ark. Even the best of us needs an ark. Look, Noah was a great guy. He really was. I mean, he responded by faith to God's promise and spent 50 gritty years building this ark. Not only did his obedience honor God, but it saved his family. Noah stood for God's truth in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation. Most of us feel good about ourselves if we spend 30 minutes with a quiet time in the morning. Noah spent 50 years building this ark. But it honestly gets better. Noah's even better than that. When the flood receded and the boat came to rest on dry ground, God appointed Noah to be the head of the new humanity, to be Adam 2.0. God was starting over and he picked Noah. How would you like that? He picked Noah to be the new Adam. Listen to chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God said that again in chapter 9, verse 7. Hopefully that's, that's triggering some memory for you. That is a word-for-word -word restatement of the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. And not only did 
God give Noah a blessing and a command like he did to Adam, God went a step further and made a covenant with Noah. He entered into a personal relationship with Noah and he made a promise. Look at verses 9 through 15. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. Noah was intended to be Adam 2.0. God wiped the slate clean. He removed the sin and the wickedness from the earth, and then he was going to start over with righteous Noah and his righteous family. And for many of us, this is, this is where our knowledge of the story of Noah ends. And that's really unfortunate. Because you don't have the whole story if you end here. Look at verse 20. After they got off the boat, it says this. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, his son, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Noah, the hero of our story, gets hammered, passes out, and exposes himself to his family. It's not awesome. This is not. By verse 20 of chapter 9, Adam 2.0 is on the sexual predators list. It's literally what just happened. And it actually gets worse if you keep reading. Noah wakes up from his stupor, and he finds out that his son has dishonored him by looking at his nakedness and then, you know, snickering about it to his brothers. And you know what Noah does? He curses his son's entire family. He doesn't just curse his son. He doesn't ground him. He curses his son and all of his kids after that. That is Adam 2.0. That is the restart. Now, here's an important question. Why did God include that in the Bible? Did he just do it to, like, humiliate Noah? No. He did it to make a point. After the reboot, after all things had been wiped off the face of the earth, you know what was still present? Sin. Sin was still there. We rebooted the computer, but the virus was still around. Because the point of Genesis 6 through 9, hear me, is not be like Noah. The point of Genesis 6 through 9 is that you need a better Noah, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus would come like Noah, but better. Like Noah, Jesus would obey God's commands when no one believed him and no one understood him. Like Noah, Jesus' obedience would provide an ark of salvation for those who followed him. But unlike Noah, Jesus would obey all the way to the end. In fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, someone filled a sponge with wine and said, here, take this shortcut. Dull your pain just a little bit. And do you know what Jesus did? He refused it. He said, I'm going to pay every single drop. I'm going to experience all of the wrath of God against the sins of humanity so that you and I can be saved. You see, Jesus was like Noah, but he was better than Noah. Like Noah's ark, Jesus will shield us from the storm of God's wrath and lift us up above the waters of God's judgment. But unlike Noah, this ark that could save us is not built out of gopher. It's built out of the torn flesh of the Son of God. Like Noah, 
Jesus emerged from the storm through resurrection as the head of a new race of people. But unlike Noah, sin no longer has dominion, praise God, over Jesus' race of people. Because when you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are filled with a power that defeats sin. And you are no longer under its dominion, and you are no longer under its control, and you are no longer under its authority, because Jesus Christ has triumphed. You see, in every way that Jesus is like Noah, he is better than Noah. You don't need Noah, you need Jesus Christ. You don't need to try hard to be better. You need a God who came to save you. So the question is, have you entered the ark? Have you entered the ark? Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation, but have you gone in? The door is open. John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. I am the way of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you gone through the door? Or are you, are you standing out here looking at the door saying, well, I believe, I believe intellectually in the door, but I also have these other options that I want to keep open. Have you gone through the door? Have you fled to the high ground that is Christ? And if you have, if you're sitting here today and you are a, you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have repented and placed your faith in him, let me ask you, are you living like this reality is real? Are you telling your coworkers and your family members and your loved ones, there is a flood of judgment coming and there has been made a way of salvation and I want you to enter into it? Or are you saying, well, that makes me uncomfortable? Yeah, I know that there's a tsunami coming, but I'd have to go down the hill and I'd have to go tell them and it might be uncomfortable and awkward. God forbid, God forbid that we would not tell people about the greatest salvation in the history of the world because it makes us uncomfortable. The door to salvation is open right now. But hear me, a time is coming when it will close and God will shut, shut that door and no one will be able to open it. Are you on the boat? Bow your heads with me. Question's pretty straightforward from, from this text. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you entered the ark of salvation? How do I do that, you ask? Well, to, to trust Jesus, Paul says first, you must confess that he is the Lord of your life. We call that repentance. Where you sit, you could say in your heart, Jesus, you're the boss of my life now, not me. Second, Paul says, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, that means that you believe Jesus has done everything necessary to save you. He is the ark, not your good works or anything else. If you receive that as a gift, Paul says that you will be saved. If you've never entered the ark of salvation, do that right now. Do that this morning. Don't let another moment go past walking out on the exposed sand, picking up seashells, not realizing that a wave is headed your way. 
You could, you could pray something like this. These aren't magic words, but they come from your heart. They're effective. You could just say, God, I confess I'm a sinner, but I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Please forgive me because of what he has done. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Heavenly Father, you are righteous and holy and loving and you are just. God, and there will be a day of judgment where every evil thing will be judged and the wicked will be cast down. But Lord, you have made a way for us. You've made a way through grace through the incredible sacrifice of your son to be cleansed and to be spared and to be called a righteous one and to escape judgment. Thank you for that incredible, incredible gift. Father, I pray for those here today who have not entered the ark of salvation, that they would do that now, that they would not delay another moment. Lord, I pray for those of us who are in the ark that we would take it seriously and we would give our lives to beckoning others to come and be saved. Lord, you are a gracious Savior. You're a wonderful Father. We praise you and we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.